Hey, we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us on the JF Podcast. It is our hope that this most recent talk teaches you, inspires you, and challenges you to live the life you were designed to live. If this message has helped you in some way, help someone else by sharing it. And if you want more information about who we are, what we do, or you'd like to contribute to our community, you can find us at JolietNaz.org. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Good morning, Joliet First. Hey, thanks for being here on this beautiful snowy day. Glad you're here. Uh, what a great time. Who, who doesn't love driving through snow? Okay, this guy. All right, there's a few of you here. Hey, uh, before we begin, a couple house cleaning things. Uh, as Debbie already said this morning, uh, next Sunday night, we want to invite you to join us for our gathering where um, we're going to be talking about the future of our church and also the name of the church that our vision team and our board has worked around and voted on and, and discussed in length. And we would love for you to be there to, to, to be part of that and to hear that. And so we want to invite you. Also, I know some of you are wondering about our closing. Our closing has been pushed back. And according uh, to Ron, I probably can't say uh, why, um, because, you know, people tend to listen to what we have to say publicly. And so um, if you have questions about why we haven't closed yet, I'm happy to share with you. And we'll share that next week as well on the 20th. Uh, But we are starting a new series, Explore God. And this is not something that we came up with as a church. But uh, we have been in conversation with churches all over the Chicago land for over the last year talking about what would it look like if churches all over Chicago went through the same series at the same time. In fact, we are tackling, so 850-some churches across Chicago and the Chicago land are doing this series together, and we are tackling seven tough questions that I honestly don't even really want to tackle up here, up front, in front of you, because they're tough questions. And they're questions that you ask, they're questions uh, from people who aren't Christians, who aren't followers of Jesus, they ask those questions as well. And um, so I would just say this, um, I'm not one who will stand up here and give you answers, but we will have a discussion around these questions. And I just think that's a great place to start, especially when you have questions. So this morning's topic is, does life have purpose? Whoa, you know, like philosophy class. Does life have purpose? So if you would pray for me before we begin this message, I would be greatly, greatly appreciative. Lord, we give these next few moments to you. We take this ginormous question And we submit it uh, as a community uh, to you. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to look at it. We're going to think about it. But I pray that uh, you would be in these next few moments. You would give me the words to speak and they would be yours and not mine. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I can remember um, I left Illinois in 2003. It was a frigid spring, and we landed in the wonderful uh, country of Kuwait where it was scorching hot. And I remember uh, when that plane door opened, when the students opened the plane door, the heat was so oppressive. I remember it made its way back into the plane. You know, we were up at you know, 40,000 feet, and all of a sudden we come down, and that heat came back to the back, and it was like it sucked the life out of me. Like I couldn't even breathe. The heat was so oppressive. You know, when you step 
off, when you step on the plane at 30 degrees and then you get off at 130, it's, it's quite a difference. And I remember just thinking, wow, if this is any taste of what the next year will be like, um, it's not going to be pretty. And so, you know, the next, that, that night we got in and we got a few hours of sleep and we, you know, slept on your bags and tent and it was a few hours of sleep. Got up the next morning, ate some chow, and then we went to the port in Kuwait there where we unloaded all of our equipment. And, um, you know, in great military fashion, ours came off first. And so we waited all day for the rest of our company and the rest of our battalion to unload all their equipment. Well, you know, what do you do when you're waiting on people? You sit in a, you know, non-air-conditioned Humvee and you wait for everybody else and, and you fall asleep. So I took a nap with all that gear on and I didn't know that like when you're sleeping, you, you sweat. In fact, there are times when we would wake up in the morning. You ever seen like a crime scene and somebody dies and they outline the body? Yeah, that's what it looks like when you wake up. There's a salt line around your body because you sweat all night long. Well, I didn't know this because, you know, I just arrived in country. And when I woke up, I wasn't aware of how long I'd been asleep. And so I woke up and felt like I had to use the bathroom. There weren't bathrooms. Uh, so I found myself between two deuce and a half, which are like troop carriers. Had a friend who was guarding me. I was going to the bathroom, utilizing the open air latrine. When all of a sudden, you've probably had this experience, uh, my vision started tunneling. And I thought, no way, this is not happening right now. I thought, you're going to pass out. You're going to pass out. You're gonna, you've had this, right? Have any of you ever passed out before? A few of you, right? You know what it's like when it starts to cave in. And, and I thought, oh, my, I better tell my friend who's guarding me that I'm, and I said, I'm about to, and the next thing I know, I'm waking up in my own urine. It was like amazing. Um, you talk about embarrassing moments of life. That was, that was it. And, and what I woke up to was this gentleman named Byron holding a needle ready to stick me with it to give me an IV. Now, there's nothing scarier than waking up with somebody holding a needle over your face. And he was our uh, platoon EMT, and, and so he had not stuck anybody up to this point and was really excited to, uh, to put into practice what he had practiced for a few months. And I don't know how good he was. I just said, hey, you get that thing away from me. And Byron became one of my best friends. In fact, uh, he was in my wedding, and he, he, uh, I was part of another company. He was the one that came over, picked me up, grabbed my equipment, introduced me to a, a bunch of new people. This guy was a doer. He was an achiever. In fact, when, when it was late at night and we wanted to go to bed, he was still working hard. Uh, there, when, when nobody else wanted to go on the dangerous missions, even though he had a family and kids, this guy's, hey, I'm going, I don't care. He would do anything. You couldn't finish a project or you didn't know how to do a project. He was there to help you. And so much of his life, I mean, when I think about them, just by nature, this is who he is. He was an achiever. He was a doer. And he just got stuff done. But I remember that he posed, one of the most important things that he ever did was pose a question to me that I'd never experienced in real life. This is something you talk about in philosophy class, right? You theorize, you look at a chalkboard, your teachers you know, tell you all the right answers and, you know, whatever. But I remember when we're sitting in this situation, he asked this question. So it's the night before we're heading up into uh, Iraq and we're standing there and we're looking at stars. And he asked this question, he says, why are we here? And of course, I love sarcasm, so I said, I don't know if you know this, brother, but you joined an organization called the, the Army where you don't ask those kind of questions. You just go where they tell you to go. I don't know if you know that, but you're not supposed to be asking this. And he goes, no, 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 no. And we started talking about war and violence and life and family and love, and we were kind of hashing all that out. Eventually, talked about God just a little bit. But he, said, he says, at the end of this, he says, no, what is the point of this? And I'm like, 
do you watch the news? Like, hello, there's a reason why we're here, supposedly. And he's, no, no, I'm talking about life. What is the point of all this? And what he was saying in that moment, and I had never been asked this question up to this point. It's always been something we just talked about in college and philosophy was, what is the purpose of life? Or is there purpose in life? And my guess is you've asked this question, right? You've been faced with something in your life. And when you're faced with a life or death situation, you start asking life's toughest questions, right? And what happens was when life is beyond your understanding, you ask stuff like this. When life is bigger than the box that you've made for life, you ask stuff like this. And my guess is at some point in your journey in life, you've asked, what is the point? What is the purpose of all this? And so to help us today, like I said, I'm not going to give you answers. It's just going to be a discussion, and it's, it's open. In fact, at some point, you're going to help me in the middle of the message. I've never done this before, so I'm a little nervous. But uh, we're going to look at a guy who was named the wisest man ever to live on the face of the earth. You think your chemistry teacher, your calculus prof, whoever, you think they're wise. You think your mentor's smart, right? This guy was the wisest ever to live on the face of the earth. So why would we not take advice from him? In fact, who needs Stanford when you have a guy named Solomon? Some of you know Solomon. Some of you are like, who in the world is Solomon? Well, Solomon was the son of David. You ever heard of David and Goliath? Everybody's heard of David and Goliath. Or David and Bathsheba. Don't have time to get into that story. But at the end of the day, Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba. And he became, like his father, a king over Israel. Now, it's interesting. God shows up to Solomon when he becomes king, and he asks them the question that you and I would love to be asked by God. If God exists, this is the question you want him to ask you. What can I do for you? If I could give you anything, what would it be? A million dollars, right? That's exactly right. And we knew, we knew, we know that Solomon is wise by virtue just simply because of the request that he makes. He says, not, will you give me a million dollars? That's what we would think. He says, I want wisdom and understanding. I want to be able to lead my people with intelligence and discernment. And God is ecstatic because most people are asking for a million dollars. Most people are asking God for the palace on the hill. They're asking for the power and the white horse. Like, that's what people are asking for, and not Solomon. He says, no, 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 I just want wisdom. And God's so ecstatic with this that he gives him a two-for-one deal. He says, not only will I give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you what everybody else asks for to begin with. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the palace. I'm going to make you king. It's going to be awesome. And what was great about it was he became an amazing king. In fact, he was so wise, some of you know the story, it begins like a bad joke or a philosophical, uh, philosophical equation. It goes like this, two mothers had two babies, one baby d uh, died, and both mothers thought the baby was theirs. Whose baby was it? You remember this story at all? Like, you wouldn't want to be faced with that question. If you know mothers and their child, you do not get in the way of somebody and their mom, a child and the mom. You just don't do it. But here come two women into Solomon's court, and they begin to ask him this question. Hey, we're fighting over this. We're quarreling over this. We're angry. We, we think this child is each of ours, and we don't know who it is. And he just stands up and says, cut the baby in half. Wow. That's like some, you know, wax on, wax off kind of stuff. I'm like, whoa. Uh, just cut him in half. 
And of course, he knows, he knows, he's so wise, he knows exactly what's going to happen. The mother, who's actually the mother, says, you know, no, just give the child away. I would prefer that the boy or the girl not die. You just give the child away. Let that mother, even though she's not the mother, take care. And, you know, and Solomon goes, well, then that's it. The one who has mercy, the one who has love, that's the real mother. That's the kind of stuff he did every day. And on top of that, he wrote tons and tons of poems, over 3,000. And then he wrote, this guy was a musician. He wrote over 1,000 songs. Not a one-hit wonder like we are today. You, you know, write one song and you make it, you're good. Now, this guy wrote over 1,000. But even in his wisdom, he was a man, which meant he is dumb. <laughs> no offense, man, but I guess I can say that. He was also one of the most foolish men ever to walk the face of the earth. In fact, even though God had promised him a bunch of stuff, a bunch of riches, a bunch of wealth, a bunch of wisdom, he still wanted more, right? We always want more. He was an achiever. He was a doer. He wanted to make more out of life than what he'd already been promised to begin with. And so he ends up marrying Pharaoh's daughter, which, by the way, when you marry you know, the daughter of the country that enslaved your people for life, you know, that doesn't set very well with people. Not only that, dude had, I mean, he was sister wives on steroids. This guy had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't know how in the world you make that happen, but apparently he did. And over time, over time, he started following the gods and idols of the wives that he gave his life over to. And what he found was over time, a God who had promised him everything, a man who had been given everything, was suddenly left with nothing. And so I say all that to say that out of that experience, he writes this essay and he begins it this way. I love it. Meaningless. Uh, in today's modern terms, I say whatever. Meaningless, he says. Utterly meaningless. And he continues, everything that you see, everything in this world is meaningless. And then he continues. What do people gain from all their labors? I bet this is a question you ask every day when you go to work, right? What is the point of this? He said, I undertook, and now he's going to tell us all the things he achieved in life. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruits and trees in them. He said, I made reservoirs, you know, big old dams to, to push water into groves where flourishing trees existed. I bought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in my house. And I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He says, I amassed gold and silver for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. He said, I became greater than anyone in Jerusalem before me. This is a pot shot, by the way, at his dad. Hey, you know the story of David and Goliath. Guess what? I'm greater than that guy. I was greater than anyone before me in Jerusalem. He says, in all of this, my wisdom that God provided me stayed with me. Yet I, I love this, he says, I denied myself nothing. My eyes desired. In other words, if I could see it, if I could smell it, if I could taste it, if I could touch it, at the end of the day, if I wanted it, I got it. I refused my heart nothing. 
I took delight in my labor. And this is how he finishes this huge rant about how great he is. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was what? Meaningless. Even though I was greater than everybody before me, everything was meaningless. A chasing of the wind. And then he says this, which we've heard before. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, if you were to look at this entire book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon provides for us in this essay that he gives us, you would find these two phrases over and over and over again, right? Everything's meaningless and there's nothing new under the sun. You ever heard non-creative people say there's nothing new under the sun? Well, it came from this guy. And so this morning, to unpack this thought of what he means by under the sun, I need your help. You actually, I've never done this before. I don't even know how this is going to go. Sorry if you're new. We rarely do this. But you ever read those books where you can, like, you know, turn to page 7 or you can turn to page 28 and have a different story and choose a different, you know this, right? Well, today we're going to do that with the message, right? I'm giving you a choice. To make this point, I can either tell you a story about how I wrecked my mother's car, actually I wrecked into my mother while she was in the car, or we can take this perspective of under the sun from the perspective of Bird Box from Netflix. So I'm going to give you a vote. How many of you say, I want to hear how you wrecked into your mother's car? Okay, all right. How many of you saying, I want Bird Box? Wow, that seems really, okay, I've got two voters. Um, well, okay, three. See me after, <laughs> by the way, just side note, I watched Bird Box last night and I didn't sleep at all because I kept seeing the light while I was, and I kept thinking they're coming for me anyway. If you've watched the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Pretty scary stuff. <laughs> My wife, on the other hand, was snoring away like nothing ever happened. So anyway, uh, cheers. So when we were growing up, we lived in the country, and, um, and, and, and to get to my house, if you were coming from the small little city, you would go out this Route 66, up this hill, and then you'd make a left once you got over the hill. And often, we would, my brother and I and my sister, we'd be coming from the, the little town, and, and my mom would be driving down this hill, and we'd see her. And so we think, hey, she gave birth to us. Um, she's very good to us. We, at least we could do is at least wave to her. And so when my mom would drive down this hill, we would all start waving, you know, we were careful, we were safe, and we'd wave to her, and, and I could never get it, but she would have both hands on the wheel, and this is what she would do. As her kids go by, who kindly and graciously are waving to her, she just... Hello? Like, did you see us? And then we would ask her, did you see... No, I didn't see you. Where were you? Like... So I remember one day we were, uh, we were coming back from the town and we were heading back out to our house and here comes my mom in her blue Astro van. It was a sweet van, by the way. Blue Astro van, she's coming down the hill and I tell my brother, we've got we've to get her attention. And so I put my knee on the wheel and I put my body, I rolled down my window, I put my body outside of the window and my brother gets outside of the window and we're both doing this, you know, as we're driving towards my mom. Well, unfortunately, you know, uh, the frontal cortex, I'm a teenager, wasn't fully there yet and my knee slips off of the wheel and I kid you not uh, she's coming past me and I accidentally turn right into the back of her van and in the rear view mirror after I smash her vehicle I see this van rolling down route 66 and I thought oh my goodness we 
done it. And our car went off into the waterwork station where they make all the city water. And I'm totally kidding because none of that's true. <laughs> Except the waving part. I remember we would wave and we would wave and we'd hang out the window and we'd scream and we'd yell and we'd honk and we'd make a scene. And there she would go, down Route 66. And I think to myself, what in the world could she be thinking about? That is so important that she can't wave to her beautiful kids hanging out the window. Until the other day, I was driving home from the gym and I was thinking about whatever it was, probably my kids or church or whatever. And I get in my driveway and I pull in and you've had this thought, you've been texting and driving, come on. I know you guys text and drive even though you're not supposed to. But I was thinking to myself, how in the world did I get here? Like, I know that I got in my car, but from the moment I got in my car to the moment I got to my house, I don't remember anything. I don't remember the police station. I don't remember McDonald's. I don't remember the underpass. I don't remember the red light that I typically run through when I'm singing with my children. I've done that occasionally. I don't remember passing Providence. All I remember is turning into my driveway thinking, how in the world did I get here? You've done this texting and driving. Come on, don't, don't act like you don't text and drive. I've watched you. You ever drive and you're texting and you look up and you realize you've gone a mile down the road and you're thinking, my goodness, how, how did I get here? And I think that is the problem with my mom is she was so in her head. She was so in her phone. She was too busy texting in her mind that she had limited herself to everything going on around her and nothing else mattered except for what was going on in her world. Everything around her was meaningless. And this is what Solomon is getting at. When he says the words, underneath the sun, that's a way of saying everything that you can see around you, everything in life, everything that is visible to you, he said, I have achieved it. I've had power. I've had a palace. I've had tons of wives and tons of women. I've had all the money. He said, I've worked in the high rise with suits. I've had the degrees. I've climbed the proverbial ladder. And guess what? What I've learned from all of this is that everything in life can be achieved. That's right. Even someday, cancer itself will be solved. Everything can be achieved. And he's, what he's saying in this moment is that there is a limit to those things in life. And I think we spend so much of our lives focused on those things that are limited that we live a meaningless life. In fact, this is the point. Life is meaningless when we live life in the limited. In other words, so many of us will spend our lives striving after the things he talks about only to wake up one day and say, how in the world did we get here? In fact, to make my, my point, um, there's a gentleman I follow. He's a great mentor, great friend, great coach. We've never talked once in our lives, but his name is Richard Rohr, and I love him. Uh, and, and he talks about in life there are first half of life people, and there are second half of life people. And he said, it's not determined by your age. Some of you who are like in your 70s and 80s think you're in your second half of life. No, it's not by your age. It's determined by your understanding and the depth of your life. 
And he says there are people who are 90 who will constantly live in the first half of their life, and there are people who are in their 20s who are already in the second half. And he says, hey, listen, most people in life, especially in the first half of their life, try to figure out what their container will be. What is this right here? This is a what? A, a mug, right? It's a coffee cup. What do you do with coffee cups? You fill it with coffee, right? It would be pointless for me to have a mug that sat in my drawer and I never used it. It's only meaningful, it's only purpose is for me to drink coffee out of it. But he says, listen, most of us spend our lives figuring out what our coffee mug is going to look like. Is it going to have a J? By the way, this is Janelle's. Is it going to have a J with polka dots all over it? Is it going to be black? Is it going to be white? Is it going to be green? We spend our whole lives trying to figure out what will our container look like. That when we get to the end of life, we look inside of it and we realize we've yet to fill it. And we think, how did we get here? Why does it feel so empty? And he says, life will only become meaningful when we learn how to fill the container we've been given. And so he says, you can spend your entire life trying to achieve the container, but unless you fill it, there will always be a void. Now, the question that I want to work with next is, if everything is meaningless, if everything that we see around us is meaningless, then when is life not meaningless? Have you thought about this question yet? Like, because we can talk about how everything around us is meaningless, but what about times in our life where life is not meaningless. So to do this, I'm going to use my diffuser. Any essential oil friends in here? Okay, whatever. But when Solomon uses this word meaningless, it's interesting because the word he uses literally means vapor or breath. Now, I know that when we think of vapor, we're like, right, it's here and then it's gone tomorrow. The cliche things that we always say, Right. But I think he was going something deeper, saying, listen, there are things in life that are tangible. There are all the things that you want to achieve in life, right? You want the house, you want the car, you want the degree, you want the job, you want all those things. That's great. But what he's saying is all those things are meaningless. In other words, as you try to hang on to it and grab it and touch it and keep it and hold it and try to make it a part of who you are, it is nearly impossible it's just a vapor. It leaves you empty. It leaves a void in your life. So what are the things that fill you up? How many of you can remember your first kiss? Some of you have never been, okay, your mom doesn't count, dad doesn't count, first kiss. How many of you remembered the first time you kissed the person that's sitting next to you, granted they're your significant other? You remember that first kiss? Somebody said that's gross. <laughs> <laughs> the reason you remember that is because it sticks with you for a lifetime you remember what it was like to be in love for the first time and to share that first kiss and you remember how full you felt after it happened some of you had amazing parents growing up you can remember that every time you went to a baseball game every time you had your role in the musical every time you played that instrument every time you can remember thinking about through your life there were your mom and dad and maybe your grandparents and what sticks with you and the thing that fills you up is the fact that your parents were always present i know some of the things that fill me up especially in the morning is when my kids give me a hug 
Nobody asks them. Nobody makes them. They just give me a hug. Or when a seven-year-old who, by the way, only cares about Fortnite and, and, and Minecraft, says to you at the dinner table, hey, how was, how was your day, Mom? Wow. That's meaningful. It sort of fills you up. When, when I think about people who have painfully learned to forgive people who have hurt them, and they've suddenly found a peace, you're filled up. When you've gone to third world countries, some of you have gone to third world countries on mission trips, just on other trips, and you've looked at the poverty around you, and you come home and suddenly you realize that you have an abundance, and it makes you thankful, and it gives you hope, and it gives you joy. That memory, that moment, sticks with you forever. When you made that cake, when you gave that homeless person a meal, right? When you mentored somebody, when you coached somebody, when you invested your life, when you've loved somebody to the umpth degree, right? Those are the things that fill your life up. Those are the things that bring your life meaning. And even though you can't touch it, and even though you can't feel it, it's definitely not meaningless. Those things are not a vapor. And so Solomon comes to the end of his life. He gets to the end of his life, and after all of his experience of chasing women and money and gold and everything else, at the end of the day, he learns this lesson. And the wisest man and the most foolish on the face of the earth shares this final phrase with us. And he says, So remember, your creator. Remember your creator. And I find it interesting that there's this juxtaposition of him using the word meaningless, a vapor and breath, and then wanting to take us back to the beginning of time. And he says, remember when you were just dust. In other words, you were nothing. I couldn't even run my fingers through you. I couldn't grab you. I couldn't hold you. You were just dust. But then there was this God in his infinite love who breathes eternal life into you and gave you something of eternal significance. He said, it is only within the context of remembering your creator that life will have meaning. If you want purposeful meaning in life, it will only be done within the perspective of your creator. And I'm not just saying that because it's, you know, something I want to say or flippantly say or, but one of the wisest people ever to walk on this earth understood that you can chase your dreams. You can chase your container your entire life. But unless you are filled with the one who gives you eternal breath, everything is meaningless. So bottom line is this. Here's what I want you to know. Life is meaningless without God. Do you know this? But God gives everything meaning. Remember your creator. And the reason I leave you with that is because from my own personal experience, when Janelle and I were first married and we were figuring things out and we had our jobs and we had our careers and we had our home and we had, you know, cars and we had everything we ever wanted or needed. And then we got into ministry and that all went out the window. But um, 
But I remember we, we spent year after year, we were debt free, we had no debt, we paid off everything. We achieved everything we wanted to achieve. And yet for some reason in life, even though I would consider myself a nominal Christian, I was empty and unhappy. In fact, I remember sitting in front of my friend on Ash Wednesday, which by the way, is to remember that you're nothing but dust. You're just a vapor without God. And I remember him standing there and looking into me and he said, listen, your greatest grievance against God is that you will not allow him to forgive you. The fact that you will not allow God to forgive you is a sin in itself. And I remember the moment I said, you know what? I want something different. I will follow Jesus. And it was at that moment that life suddenly had meaning. Believe it or not, I've only been a Christian for eight years. You know, I went to church my whole life, but it was a joke. So here I am eight years as a Christian following Jesus. And I gotta be honest, like I never really understood how Christian people could have purpose in life and have meaning in life. And they talk about hope and all this God talk and it really would just bore me. But then all of a sudden, when, when I felt like I had direction in life and I had purpose in life and I realized that everything I was doing was not by accident, but at the root of it and at the heart of it was this eternal breath of God that every interaction with a person, every encounter, every time I mentored, every time I loved my kids or my son, or that I you know, had a meaningful conversation with my wife, those things were God breathed. Everything began to have meaning and purpose. And I want that for you. So if you're sitting here saying, I don't know about this God thing, I'm not really sure. Hey, listen, I can't give you the answer. In fact, next week, come back, we're talking about, does God exist? I don't know. I don't know, I wrestle with that every day. But we're gonna have a conversation about it. I'm just talking from personal experience. Your life, you will live the way you were designed when you remember your creator.